So we're in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And as I've shared before, and I just want to remind us um, that I'm coming from a different perspective than what most of us have ever heard or been taught um, about the book. And because of that, it will cause some difficulty at times. And if it hasn't caused difficulty for what you have always believed or held about this book, uh, yet it certainly will as we go deeper into the book and even even tonight as we think about um, Revelation chapter 7 and these two visions that John has. And so I offer this in a spirit of humility, recognizing that throughout the long history of the church for 2,000 years, Christian people who believe in the Lord Jesus and hold to the authority of his word have differed in their opinions and their convictions about this book. And so um, we can do that with justice and with grace and with, with a common commitment to the authority of Christ and with the promise that even though we may disagree in the particulars, we do have the assurance common to all of us that Jesus Christ will reign over all the kingdoms of earth, that all of his enemies will one day be destroyed and all of his saints will one day be delivered and that we will reign with him forever, confident that the last enemy will be defeated and that God will bring us into his presence and into his glorious peace. When we think about Revelation chapter 7, I want us to think under this title, Numbered Among the Innumerable People of God. If I had to give a title to this chapter, it would be Numbered Among the Innumerable People of God. Of God. The reality of the sealed multitude is proof that no matter how bleak things may get, the people of God will overcome. That's sort of the heart of Revelation chapter 7 and these two visions that John is given a vision of four angels who have authority to bring harm upon the earth and one angel who stops that harm from being poured out until the tribes of Israel, the servants of God, are sealed. And a vision of an innumerable multitude of every nation and tribe and tongue, those who are clothed in white robes with victorious palm branches in their hands, ascribing praise unto the God of their salvation, those who indeed have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb, having come through the great tribulation. And what I want to show you, what I believe is at work, in Revelation chapter 7 is two sides of the same coin. One side of this coin is the vision of verses 1 through 8. The numbered tribes of Israel. And the other side of this coin is what we see in the vision of verses 9 through 17. The innumerable multitude of the nations. And what I believe, and I'll show you this as we walk through it, but what I believe in a nutshell is this, that the tribes described in verses 1 through 8 are the same as the great multitude described in verses 9 through 17. And that what is going on here is John's demonstration of what has been shown to him 
that God does not lose any of his people. That's why they're numbered. And God has chosen his people. That's why he uses the symbol of Israel, his covenant people. And yet his people are numbered not just from the tribes of Israel, but from every nation, tribe, and language. And they are so vast that no man could count them all. In chapter 6, we learn the, what was contained in the scroll, in the, in the first six seals around this scroll of the story of the end of days. We've not yet learned what the story of the end of days looks like. That's to begin in chapter 8. The breaking of the first four seals, however, told us about the ordinary course of human history. History that is wrecked by sin, but being redeemed by the Lamb. The first seal revealed a white horse with a rider who came conquering and to conquer. A reminder to us of the advancement of the kingdom mission of Jesus Christ, who promised that his gospel would be preached in all the world and then the end would come. The second seal revealed a red horse with a rider who was permitted to take peace from the earth demonstrating the warfare and bloodshed that accompany life in a fallen world. The third seal revealed a black horse with a rider who carried scales in his hand that would convey market downturn, rising inflation, and food insecurity. The fourth seal revealed a pale horse whose rider's name was Death, and Hades followed. Their authority over a fourth of the earth signaled a time when the trouble and tumult of life in a fallen world would dramatically increase and the world would suffer pointed, widespread destruction. The fifth seal revealed the spiritual correlation to the earthly realities of the first four seals by sounding the cries and showing the comfort of the saints beneath the altar who had been slain on account of the word of God and their testimony of Jesus Christ. Finally, the sixth seal flashed forward to the end of human history when judgment would come upon the whole earth and the earth dwellers would run for cover as they asked, Who can stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb? Before witnessing the opening of the seventh seal that we'll see in chapter 8 and verse 1, and the unveiling of the story of the end of days, John is given a vision of the sealing of the numbered tribes of Israel and the shouting of the innumerable multitudes of the nations. As I said, I'm convinced that these two groups of people are actually one that they are the whole people of God who have been sealed for salvation, a salvation that comes through the blood of the Lamb. They are the numbered tribes of Israel, which is to say they have been counted by God, included in his people, kept in his record book. And yet they are innumerable multitudes of the nations, which is to say that God's people is made up of all the redeemed from every language, tribe, and tongue, and that the people of God is so vast that no mortal man could count them all. And in the midst of these two images is a word of assurance for us that the one who can stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb is the one who is numbered, among the innumerable people of God. So look at chapter 7 and verses 1 through 8. John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree, 
Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. In verse 1, you see the four angels and the four winds. John is given a vision of four angels who, according to verse 2, had been given power to harm earth and sea. If you look at the Greek text of this verse, there is no word for power there in verse 2. So a more literal translation of verse 2 would be to say this, that they had been placed to harm the earth and the sea. This speaks to the fact that these angels not only had power to harm the earth, namely the four winds, but had the purpose of harming the earth as well. They were God's agents sent to bring judgment to the earth. Another angel in verse 2 comes into view with a clear message. The judgment that is to be poured out upon the earth or the sea or the trees must be withheld until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Here we see in verses 2 and 3 the protection of God's people. That this angel has the seal of the living God doesn't mean that he himself has been sealed, but that he has the ability to seal others, to mark people out as belonging to God. The idea of a seal here, like the seal upon the scroll, the seals upon the scroll of the end of human history, is the idea of an impression, something that marks something out, that certifies or determines or, or guarantees the, the reality, the truthfulness of what's contained inside. The sealing of the servants of God here is described as before the harm that is to be enacted upon the earth. Yet this is a way of describing the necessity of the sealing, not necessarily the timing of the sealing. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is sealed at the point of conversion. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14. There he writes, In him, that is Jesus Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The sealing of the Spirit of God upon the lives of the people of God is a way of guaranteeing that we will endure to the end, that we will persevere and that we will come out in allegiance to God and to the Lamb. Regarding the harm that's described here in verses 2 and 3, George Eldon Ladd says this is John's picturesque way of referring to the plagues which are shortly to fall on mankind 
and the protection of God's people from these plagues. We see here in verses 2 and 3 a concern. A concern that God's people will not be overtaken by the reality of harm, of trouble, of judgment that will be poured out upon the earth. And in order to ensure that that doesn't happen, they must be marked out for God. They must be kept by Him, sealed by Him, preserved by Him. So what we see in verses 4-8 through is the sealing of the numbered tribes of Israel. Having held back the outpouring of judgment until the servants of our God are sealed on their foreheads, John now tells us that he heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That the sealing must take place before the outpouring of harm upon the earth by the angels indicates that this sealing is a protection for the servants of God. Some will say that this, was a, that this means that the seal do not endure the great tribulation, but I'm convinced that this is not a preemption from enduring God's wrath, but a promise that these will endure God's wrath without being consumed. I think one of the things to keep in mind here that's helpful as we think about how chapter 7 sits within the broader story of the Revelation is to hear the echoes of the Old Testament, particularly the story of the Exodus. You remember how God had set his chosen people down in the land of Egypt and they had endured 400 years of slavery. And the time comes that God would deliver his people and bring them up out of the land of Egypt into freedom. And as God is orchestrating that event and bringing about these things in order to release his people, to free them from their enslavement, God uses plagues upon the people of Egypt in order to turn Pharaoh's heart and in order to harden him. And as those plagues are poured down upon the people of Egypt, the people of Israel are in the midst, and yet they are protected in the midst of the plagues. Maybe there's no greater illustration of this than the reality of the plague of the firstborn sons of the house of Egypt being taken. You remember there how God gives this command that if Pharaoh continues to endure in his rebellion against God, there is going to be this horrific terror that plagues the land where the firstborn of every household, livestock included, are taken. And yet what does God do? God instructs his people to take the blood of the lamb and to mark the posts and the lintels of their homes So that when death passes over the land and takes the firstborn of every house in rebellion against him, those who trust in the Lord their God will not be destroyed. It's the same concept, I'm convinced, when God seals his people ahead of pouring judgment out upon the earth. It is not a preemptive work to take them out before judgment comes, but it instead is a preserving work to show that they will indeed endure judgment. When we think about these verses, there remains two questions regarding this sealing 
One, what is the significance of the number of those sealed? And two, what is the identity of those sealed? First, think about the identity of those who are sealed. John tells us that they are from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Israel, we all know, had another name first, right? What's his name, church? Jacob, right? And Jacob had 12 sons born by two wives and two servants of his wives. His two wives are Leah and Rachel. Rachel, his chosen wife. Leah bears him six sons. Rachel bears him two sons. And then each of their servants bear him two sons, the servants Bilhah and Zilpah. We see that in Genesis chapter 35, verses 22 to 26. These are the sons of Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. These are the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. These are the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilphah, Rachel, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. Seems rather short and sweet, to the point. The sons of the tribes of Israel. It might seem obvious for us to say, well, these are the remnant of the chosen people. 12,000 from every one of the tribes of Israel. What more is there to say about it? But if we read carefully, if we pay attention to what's listed in the numbering of these 12 tribes in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, then we quickly come to understand these are not literally the 12 tribes of Israel because one tribe is omitted, namely the tribe of Dan, and one tribe is seemingly represented twice, namely Joseph, because of the inclusion of both Joseph and his son, the tribe of Manasseh. The issue of an altered list of the tribes of Israel is not original to John. When we look to the lists of the tribes in the Old Testament, we find that they are not only arranged in varying orders, but often appear with the exclusion of both Levi, due to the fact that the Levites were not given their own section of the land, and also the exclusion of Joseph, who's represented most often by his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. There's a whole lot of these lists, but just a couple that are worthy of note. The listing in Genesis 49, in Exodus chapter 1, in Numbers 2, in 1 Chronicles 2, and in Ezekiel chapter 48. You'll find in Genesis 49, Exodus 1, and 1 Chronicles 2, that all of the 12 tribes are included. They're just included in different orders. If you go to Numbers chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 48, you'll find there that the numbers of the tribes are different, that not all of the tribes are included. In both of those listings, Levi and Joseph are left out. And in both of them, Manasseh and Ephraim take their place. So this listing is not a listing of the literal 12 tribes of Israel. Then like so many other things in the book, we should ask, is it symbolic? And if it is symbolic, what does it symbolize? I think we find that answer both by looking at the immediate context in chapter 7 and by looking back to the significance of other altered tribal lists in the Old Testament. The prophecy in Ezekiel 48, where there is an altered list, 10 of the tribes recorded and then Levi and Joseph left out with Manasseh and Ephraim substituted, The passage there speaks of the final salvation of Israel, 
of what will come to the covenant people of God at the end of days in the settling of the land according to their tribes. But if John means to relate the the end of days salvation for Israel, I think we should expect that he would use the same listing Ezekiel used, the same listing that we saw in the book of Numbers. But he doesn't do that. Instead, the listing that John gives stands on its own. In all the other listing of the 12 tribes of Israel throughout the Old Testament, we never have the same listing that John uses. No other list leaves out Dan the way that John does. No other listing replaces Joseph and Manasseh, Joseph with Joseph and Manasseh rather than with Manasseh and Ephraim. So we're left wondering, what's going on here? I think what's going on here is that John intends to say something different. That he's not speaking about the 12 genealogical ethnic tribes of Israel, but instead about the true, real, genuine, spiritual Israel of God. Some of you were with us last summer when we studied the book of Galatians, And you'll remember that there the Apostle Paul in both Galatians and in his letter to the church at Rome makes quite the deal of explaining that the real children of Abraham, the real people of God, are those who are a people of faith. Those who have trusted in God and in the Son of God. I think what John wants us to understand is that the real Israel, the real tribes of Israel, those who are the real covenant people of God, are those who trust in the Lord their God by faith. As for the significance of the number of those who are sealed, we need only remember that the number 12 and its multiples are symbolic of wholeness or fullness or completeness. So this number signifies the complete or whole people of God. You remember that in the letters that Jesus spoke, that John wrote to the churches in chapter 2 and verse 9, in chapter 3 and verse 9, that there were words regarding a synagogue of Satan. Not only does the Apostle Paul understand that there is something different between the ethnic descendants of Abraham and the spiritual descendants of Abraham, but so does the Apostle John. John understood that those who really believe in Jesus are the true Jews. Those who believe Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Christ, Jesus as anointed one, those who believe that Jesus is their Savior, Redeemer, and Lord are those who have a real connection to Abraham, not those who have rejected Jesus and thereby have aligned themselves with the God of this world, the devil. So I think we're right to conclude that this is a symbol These 12 tribes are a symbol of the full-numbered people of God. And they teach us that God is aware of all his people down to the individual and that he is able to preserve his people so that not a single one is lost. That brings us to chapter 7 and verse 9. Where the first eight verses teach us about the numbered tribes of Israel, the last verses teach us about the innumerable multitudes of the nations. 
John's first vision in verses 1 through 8 is telling. It's not the numbered tribes of Israel that John sees. If you go back and look at those first eight verses, John talks about those 12 tribes that are numbered, 12,000 per tribe, 144,000 of the sons of the tribes of Israel altogether. But if you notice in chapter 7 in verse 4, John says this. He says, I heard the number of the sealed. John doesn't tell us that he saw the sealed. He tells us that he heard their number. Instead, the vision that John has in verses 1 through 8 is a vision of angelic beings. Four angels that each hold the ability, the authority to bring harm upon the earth. And one angel that ceases and stops those four angels from enacting that harm so that he might bring about the sealing of the servants of God. But in those first eight verses, John only hears about those who are sealed. He doesn't see them themselves. I think that's telling because in chapter 7 and verse 9, John then does see the people of God. To this point, John has only seen the angels, heard the number of those who are sealed, but he has not seen them. But it changes in short order. For as soon as John hears the number of those who had been sealed, he looks and beholds an innumerable multitude. It is this reality that leads me to conclude that the innumerable multitudes of the nations are equivalent to the numbered tribes of Israel. They are two sides of the same coin. They are the people of God numbered so that no one is lost of the tribes of Israel to certify that they are God's chosen covenant people. And yet they are also the great multitude that no one could number, signifying the vastness of God's redemptive work. And they're from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, reminding us that God has always been drawing the nations to himself. Read verses 9 through 17 with me. John says there in chapter 7 and verse 9, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In verses 9 and 10, you see the great multitude rejoicing in salvation. John tells us four things about this great multitude. First, he tells us about their formation. 
The multitude is formed of every people from the, every nation, from tribes and peoples and languages. God has been telling a story of redemption for the nations since the beginning of time. And at the end of days, on the other side of the great tribulation, His people will be gathered to Him forever, a people from every nation on earth. He tells us first about their formation, then He tells us about their location. He says that this great multitude is located in the presence of God Himself. They are before the throne and before the Lamb. They have been accepted by God because they have been absolved and made alive by Him. Number three, John tells us about their justification. John tells us that this great multitude is clothed in white robes. In chapter 7 and verse 14, one of the elders will tell John that these ones clothed in white robes have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is not the blood, listen, it is not the blood of martyrdom that has come to characterize or ennoble them, but it is the blood of the Lamb that justifies them in the eyes of God. What they do now, why do they now dwell in the presence of God and the Lamb? It is because they have been made right with Him through a righteousness that He Himself has afforded to them. Remember the words of Jesus to the church at Sardis in chapter 3 and verse 4 where He reminds us that those who will walk with Him will do so in white Justification is a necessary thing in order to enjoy the divine presence. But thankfully, it is an accessible thing for those who repent and believe. Finally, John tells us about their adoration. He says that the great multitude adores God and the Lamb with palm branches, a symbol of victory, and with a cry. That, that word cry there is, it's the piercing shriek. It's this... It's this noise that cannot be ignored. It's a cry of praise to the one who is the source of their salvation, the God who reigns upon the throne. In verses 11 and 12, you see the ranks of angels bowed in adoration. We saw in chapters 4 and 5 how there are ranks of angels, elders and living creatures and the sort, and how they're engaged in the worship of Almighty God. They're not only continually offering worship, praise to God on their own, but they are often responding to the praise of God with increased acts of devotion. And that's what we see here. That as the great multitude offers praise to God, the ranks of angels fall on their faces before the throne and worship God even more. Dr. Bill Cook, my New Testament professor, noted seven acclamations of the song of the angels. I want to show you these very quickly. One, they offer blessing, which is a verbal expression of love and devotion to God. Number two, glory, an expression describing the radiance of God's person. Number three, wisdom, which is God's knowledge exhibited in the plan of redemption. Number four, they offer to him thanksgiving, an appropriate response to the goodness of God. Number five, they offer to him honor, a public acknowledgement of the greatness of God. Number six, they offer to God power, 
A recognition that God can do anything and everything he intends to do. And number seven, they offered to God might, which is God's redemptive presence in the events of human history. In verses 13 to 17, I want you to see those who are serving, sheltered, and shepherded. One of the elders from the throne asked John the question, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? John responds by prompting the elder to reveal what he already knows, that these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Ladd writes that the great tribulation will be but a concentration of the same satanic hostility which the church has experienced throughout her entire existence when Satan, in one final convulsive effort, tries to turn the hearts of God's people away from their Lord. One thing that is important to note, and that is the presence of the definite article, the word the, before great tribulation. It's there in the English, it's also there in the Greek. The presence of that definite article is important because it reminds us that this is a specific period of time. Seven years, maybe literally, or seven years, maybe a time of completeness, a whole period of intense, very great tribulation. But it should be understood that this is a specific time in the history of the world If you're in the dispensational camp, you'll take this to be following following the time of the rapture of the church. I'm in the historic premillennial camp, and so I take this to be a time at the end of human history prior to the rapture of the church. But nonetheless, it is a period of great, intense, real tribulation for the people of God and for the world. God does not spare his people from the great tribulation, but seals his people for it. The people of God will come out of the great tribulation beaten, mocked, harassed, oppressed, and I think most likely martyred. But they will come out. And the very reason that they will come out of the great tribulation is that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's important, church, for us to recognize that while martyrdom almost assuredly characterizes the people of God as they come out of the great tribulation, it is not their martyrdom that is the cause for their endurance, and it is not their martyrdom that is the cause of their eternal salvation. It is the sacrifice of the Lamb for them and for us. Their trust in the blood of the Lamb that was poured out is what gives them standing in God's presence. The elder with whom John is speaking tells John about their service, their shelter, and their shepherd. First, John is told that those who have, over, who have come out of the great tribulation serve God day and night in his temple. The word serve here is the same word that we see in Luke chapter 2 when we see the description of Anna the prophetess who served God day and night in the temple. That John is told they serve day and night is not to say that there is night in the presence of God, but to show that the service of God, particularly in worship, does not ever end. God is ever worthy of worship. 
Then the elder tells John about the shelter of his great multitude. He says that the one who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. God's sheltering of his people is is technically the idea of his tabernacling himself with them. It's the spreading of his tent over them such that they dwell with him and he dwells with them. It's the same word that we read in chapter 21 and verse 3 when we read about that new heaven and new earth where God himself will come down and dwell with his people. We spend so much time, and rightly so, longing to dwell in the presence of God that sometimes we forget that the great hope and the final reality of our faith is that not only will mankind dwell in the presence of God, but God himself will dwell in the presence of men. He will tabernacle himself with us. The great multitude will dwell in the presence of God, and as a consequence, their hunger and thirst will be satisfied, and they will be protected from the offense of the Son And the reasons that all these things will be so is because God himself will be their shepherd. He will shepherd his people, the great multitude, into the fullness of his presence. He will bring them to living water and will take away every tear of mourning. These things have not become realities yet, but at the last day they will be. So we have to ask the question, The question that chapter 6 ended on, who can stand on the great day of the wrath of the Lamb? Let me give you four responses to that. Number one, the one who can stand on the great day of the wrath of the Lamb is sealed with the Spirit of God. Jesus warned us in his Olivet Discourse, that it is the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. There are so many people, as we've often talked about, who start out on a road of faith. They begin to walk with Jesus Christ. They begin to trust in Him. They begin to pursue His calling upon their lives. But before they finish, they fizzle. They give up. They stop. They quit. They drift. They depart. They go back what was before. You need to understand there's no crown for those who quit. There's no place in the kingdom of God for those who abandon the gospel. There's no place among the people of God for those who turn away from Jesus Christ. It is the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. But hear the good news of the gospel, church, That those who truly trust in Jesus Christ, those who put their faith, their hope, their dependence, their belief in Him, those who set their affection upon Him and commit their lives to Him, they not only have the call to persevere, but they have the sheer wonder of grace that God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, preserves them so that they do persevere. The deposit of the Holy Spirit in the life of the child of God is the guarantee that we will not give up. 
So you say, what about the person who walks away? What about the person who quits? What about the person who abandons faith? Friend, they never had faith to begin with. Because if you can abandon the gospel, if you can turn away from Jesus Christ, then you've never actually known him or never actually been filled by his spirit. It is the sealing of the spirit of God that preserves the people of God and causes us to be able to endure on the day of the wrath of the Lamb. Who can stand on the great day of the wrath of the Lamb? The one who is sealed with the Spirit of God. Number two, the one who is numbered among the people of God. The one who is numbered among the people of God. Some of you have been around during vacation Bible school. And if you've ever been around during vacation Bible school, then one of the things you know is that the most hectic day of vacation Bible school is day number one. Because in spite of the fact that we do everything we can to get everybody registered online ahead of time, it doesn't always happen. And in spite of the fact that we have all of these wonderfully organized lanyards with their names on them, we don't know all these children. And in spite of the fact that they all have registration forms before they walk into the sanctuary, knowing exactly where those registration forms are supposed to go into which classes and making sure that those class leaders know which children they're responsible for is always a headache. I'm so thankful for Michelle Dyson because her work as our children's ministry director means that I don't have to worry about that. But for seven years, I was the pastor and also the VBS director. And I did have to worry about that. And Monday night of Bible school was a terror. And I would find myself spending the entire two and a half hours walking around with these lists going, which class is this kid actually in? And numbering them and counting them and going over all the numbers, trying to see, do I have it right? Because at the end of the night, I better know how many kids I had. I better have all those kids to give back to their parents. And I better make sure that they get to the right place. That God numbers his people means that he knows us all by name. He has a place for all of us in his kingdom. And he does not lose one. Don't ever forget, dear friends, that you, the people of God, are a precious gift that the Father gives into the hand of the Son and that the Son holds secure to give back to the Father at the last day. God numbers us so that we can endure who can stand on the great day of the wrath of the Lamb? Those who are sealed by the Spirit of God. Those who are numbered among the people of God. Number three, those who are committed to the gospel of God. doesn't matter which camp you're in in terms of approaching this book. There is a great tribulation coming. And there will be believing people who go through that tribulation and come through it by faith. And those who go through that tribulation and come through it by faith, many of them 
will lose their lives on account of the gospel. And so one of the things that we have to note is that not only is the one who can endure the day of the wrath of the Lamb, the one who is sealed with his spirit and numbered among his people, it is also the one committed to his gospel. There is no hope of salvation outside of Jesus Christ, and there is no hope of salvation for the one who trusts in anything but him and him alone. And so here we are in 2023. I haven't written 22 yet this week. I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. But here we are in 2023, having it fairly easy to live the Christian life. But you and I both know it will not always be this way. You and I both know that there are Christian people around the world who endure great terror on account of their faith. And if we live long enough, and if not us, our sons and daughters, our grandchildren, they will face the same sort of oppression and hardship and trouble that many already face in the world because of their faith. So it matters that we say here and now that as much as we must be sealed by the Spirit and as much as we must be numbered among the people of God, friends, we must be committed to the gospel. We can't give way. One of the things that I I wrote down just the other day as I had some time off and some time to think and pray, I was trying to think about what happens in the life of a family. Why Why is it that my family can be so oriented toward Christ in this generation and be so far from him in two generations' time? Well, it's because what's a matter of conviction to me is a matter to be convinced to Jack. And if Jack never becomes convinced of the same truths that I hold, it'll be merely custom, culture, tradition. And if it's never anything more than custom or culture or tradition, then Jack will only give himself half-hearted to it and his children by their own choice, not at all. And in two generations' time, it could all be lost. Friends, we must be committed to the gospel. And we must teach our sons and daughters to do the same. How does one overcome? How does one stand and endure on the great day of the wrath of the Lamb? He must be sealed with the Spirit of God, numbered among the people of God, committed to the gospel of God. But here's here's everything. This is what it hinges on. He must be washed in the blood of the Lamb. John says those who are coming out had washed their robes white in the blood. Have you been to Jesus for His cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? 
Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Father, the only hope we have in life and in death is that Your sinless Son, our Savior, has poured out His blood willingly for us. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day And there may I, though vile as He, wash all my sins away. Our hope, dear God, our confident assurance, our deep abiding trust, our whole hope in life and in death is in the blood of the Lamb. Oh God, if we trust in anything else, show us. Show us the folly of trusting in anything else. And may we at the last day stand, overcome, persevere, endure, be raised. Because we washed our garments white. We pray it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.